0: Take your Bibles, turn to the book of Hosea, chapter 9. We are going through the book of Hosea, verse by verse. If you're new to us, today you're going to need to hang on. Uh, This is a most difficult passage of Hosea. It deals with judgments of sin, consequences of sin. These are on full display in this passage. The people of God have been in a state of whoredom and obstinate idol worship. That is not how you would like to be characterized in the Bible. Uh, They assumed that prosperity was from a foreign god, and they served that god, Baal. So they were deceived by their own prosperity. Not too unlike many people today. They have a lot of nice things. They assume that God must be blessing everything they're doing because they have nice things. That's not necessarily the case. There are words in this passage today that frankly seem rather brutal, and they don't seem fitting to be in the Bible. They are not easy to interpret. Some of you may find them very uncharacteristic of God. You might wonder whether you're picture of God is accurate or are we just going to reject the kind of God that is presented here verses 14 and 17 are prayers given by Hosea the rest are God's words now we have talked the last couple Sundays about the main idol of American society you know we're trying to think all right How does this apply to us today? We don't have these Baal-worshiping idols today, so we don't have idols. Well, not so quick. Uh, We have other things that have replaced the name of God, and one of the ones that I think is probably our biggest is the human being being their own sovereign, writing their own rules. Self is king. Uh, It's freedom to do whatever you wish with the expectation of approval and even celebration. Come against this idea and you are an intolerant toad. Write that down, toad. You are worthy of cancellation. What I'm describing is a form of secularism. It's the idea that I am my own authority. Not God. God brings a law implanted into our hearts through the person of Christ, and there is a a moral order of living in this kingdom under King Jesus. Secularism says something different. It says, I will have sex with whoever I want, when I want, I want to spend my money the way I want, I want to live my life based upon my passions, without interference, especially from an Old Testament hate-mongering God, so they say. So listen, if you have not settled this bigger issue of who is the authority in your life, then you're going to find this passage extremely troubling in fact, you'll find most injunctions of the Bible troubling because if, if I recognize that God is my sovereign, then I'm living under that and I can accept what he says, but if not, it rubs against the culture, rubs against self, thus the problem we have in today's society and even today's churches. Churches. The issue really is not whether we are made in the image of God. We we affirm that every person is valuable. The issue is not whether each person deserves to be treated with respect and love. We affirm that as well. The issue is not does everyone have a moral choice in, in moral matters. We affirm that as well. The issue is will we as individuals... Be responsible before a holy God for our actions, especially as the people of God. Let's just be honest, we, we just don't think this way a lot of times, right? We just don't deliberately think this way. So Israel rejected Jehovah God and opted for an idol that approved of their passions So let's read this passage, and you're going to see what I'm talking about, about how difficult it is. Let's all stand. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel like the first fruit of the fig tree in the first season. I saw your fathers, but they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. Ephraim, that's the main tribe in Israel, so it's kind of a synonym for Israel, Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them till none is left. Woe to them when I depart from them. Ephraim, as I have seen, was like a young palm planted in a meadow, but Ephraim must lead his children out to slaughter. Give them, O Lord, what will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. Every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I will begin to hate them. Because of the wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Even though they give birth, I will put their beloved children to death. My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. Heavenly Father, I ask a simple prayer of you. More of Jesus, less of me, less of us. We pray this in his name, amen. You may be seated. The first part of verse 10 relives God delighting in Israel as his people. He blessed them. There was such a joy in finding them. It was like fresh fruit being given to them in a desert. The fruit of their ancestors was like ripe figs with the great promise of reproducing. Fecundity was a big issue. They wanted a lot of children. And they felt that this blessing came from Baal and not God. As soon as the Israelites came in contact with the Canaanites, worshiping Baal, they were spellbound by their sensual orgies at their festivals. They were seduced by their idol worship. And they deliberately separated themselves from Jehovah God, the restraints of the law of God, and dedicated themselves to idol worship. Hear this account in the book of Numbers. When the Israelites were camped in the valley of Acacia, the men began to have sexual intercourse with the Moabite women who were there. These women invited them to sacrificial feasts where the God of Moab was worshiped. The Israelites ate the food and worshiped the God, Baal of Peor. So the Lord was angry with them. Jesus also comments about Israel's rejection of God centuries later, when he was speaking of a fig tree in Mark 11. The fig tree had leaves without figs. It was a picture of Jesus speaking of Israel not bearing fruit as a part of their judgment for rejecting the Messiah. You know, Jesus continually derided the Pharisees and the Jews because of their commitment to rituals and, you know, religious festivals, regulations, that never transpired to real faith, personal faith in Jesus. It reminds me, doesn't it, that a person can have all the trappings. They can go to church. They could maybe even get baptized, catechized. They could do a lot of different things but they're really not a disciple of Christ. They handle their affairs on their own as they wish, and God is not sovereign in their life. And for that matter, there are pastors who have churches that are relationally and spiritually unhealthy. You can't just make the program and separate yourself from the responsibility to be obedient to Jesus relationally, spiritually, as a leader. I want us to remind us that the motif that Hosea is working with here is in the backdrop of marriage. God asked Hosea to do a very strange thing. He asked him to marry a prostitute. And this was to be a picture of what it was like for God with Israel. Israel was the prostitute with the faithful husband of God. Maybe verse 10 just resembles more of the broken heart of God over his people. Like with many committed relationships, you have this joyous memory mingled with pain. Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them till none is left. Woe to them when I depart from them. Ephraim, as I have seen, was like a young palm planted in a meadow, but Ephraim must lead his children out to slaughter. Give them, O Lord, what will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. The greatness of Israel will seem like a bird, fleeing, the promises that God made to his people are now going to be transplanted by the curses that God also gave with his people when he originally gave them the promises that if you disobey me, that if you worship idols, there are certain things that are going to happen to you. This included infertility, death, and exile as a nation. It's like God saying, the people chose to live separate from me, so now I'm going to let them, right? Uh, They wanted to live without my law. They'll also live without my blessing. Now, Hosea, you read through this passage. I mean, he sees death for his people. This is the appropriate curse for all to die. I mean, the fact is all of us sin, all of us deserve to die because of our sin. But God really is not fair. Instead, he expresses grace to us, goes beyond fairness, and in his mercy allows us to live. Now, I know most don't see it that way. But, you know, the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so Hosea seems to ask God to kind of mitigate the disaster. In essence, he, he asks for a lesser punishment for their harlotry, but not, please don't bring annihilation. Miscarrying wounds, okay, dry breasts, that would be in direct contradiction to the false prayers for fertility offered in the Baal idols. This was Hosea asking for mercy From God, they deserve death. Lord, please just limit the birth rate and the breast milk. And when God removes birth, pregnancy, conception, the future of the nation, it's going to be in jeopardy. What is being declared is the impotency of Baal, because they depended on Baal, and the sovereignty of God over nature. Every evil is theirs, of theirs is in Gilgal. And then listen to this. Therefore I began to hate them. I mean, you got did I read that right? Is that yeah. Because of the wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Let's first talk about Gilgal. Get that out of the way. Gilgal was mentioned for several reasons. One, it was the base of operations when Joshua first uh, launched the attack against the inhabitants of the Promised Land. We read this in Joshua. They went to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal and said to him and to the Israelites, we have come from a far country, so now make a treaty with us. And then a chapter later in the Gibeonites sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal saying, do not abandon your servants, come up to us quickly and save us and help us for all the kings of the Amorites who live in the whole country are gathered against us. Gilgal also marched a kind of division to where God was providing the manna and the quail in the wilderness for 40 years. Now God was responsible for blessing within the promised land, protection in the promised land. Gilgal was the hot spot for God's blessing. It was there that Joshua 10 says that God caused the Amorites to flee, and God would protect. Gogol was also, it was a mixed bag, it was also where Saul was confirmed as king. The people opted for a tall, good-looking leader instead of waiting on God to confirm a leader. The optics won out. You may have read in the 1960 election, yes, I was alive during that time, between Nixon and Kennedy, that Kennedy, all those who watched the um, debate for the election, all that watched the debate thought that Kennedy won on television because he was this young stud, right? Most who heard it on television Radio thought Nixon won because of the content. is that interesting? So Israel was swayed by the optics, and Saul would eventually lose the kingdom when he disobeyed Samuel. So Gilgal also brings to mind the beginning of a disobedient nation, disobedient leaders. But here's the part that is most troubling. It was there that I began to hate them because of the evil that they've done. I will not love them anymore. All their leaders have rebelled against me. We normally don't find that kind of verbiage used for God. And I suppose the temptation is to give a thousand qualifications for this Kind of a passage to where it loses its meaning and its purpose. If you find this jolting, it's because it is. I'm not sure that we're to dumb it down so that it's not jolting. Because then I think it loses some of the impact that was intended. Is hatred possible in a committed relationship? Just this weekend, Janet and I had to make a little video for some friends of ours that just celebrated their 50th anniversary. Um, One of the things I did not include in the video I sent them was, how many years have you hated one another in the 50 years? Probably would not be appropriate for an anniversary video. But for those who've been married a long time, would this be a surprise that there are seasons in which you've had this kind of even intense hatred? I know a pastor shouldn't say these things. I know it's all love and butterflies, but in reality, seriously, come on. Perhaps we shouldn't be all surprised. Remember, this book is from the perspective of a troubled marriage. The woman is cheating on her husband. God is conveying his feelings through this prism. And the intensity of his feelings towards his bride, Israel, are not shocking to anyone who's gone through such difficulties in a marriage. The acts are so atrocious to God, so off-putting, so wicked. Hate encapsulates his feelings toward his children while they're in this state. It's not a direct corollary, but I think it helps. As I share with you this story, I remember talking to the next door neighbor of where my wife grew up. The elderly woman was at this time a widow, and she had a daughter that was strung out on drugs, and the daughter was homeless. She repeatedly had chances to get help, but after being given money countless times, stealing for money, her welcome had been used up. She could not be trusted. Now, to the daughter, and maybe perhaps even to others on the outside, Carol may have appeared uncaring to shut her off. She didn't wanna be taken advantage of anymore as a mother. If any of you have gone through anything like this, you, I think, can understand what I'm talking about. The mother did not have an overflowing affection and as in a present, joyful feeling of love for her daughter. Some of it may have even defined it as cold. I think that would have been unfair. It's, it's the tension of being in a relationship by covenant or birth with someone that does nothing but take from you. They show disrespect and dishonor. And at the least, maybe you can understand, hating those seasons Hating where the relationship is, hating where the person takes it. So let me ask you again is is hate far fetched in a relationship where unfaithfulness abounds? Israel is the prostitute in our story, God is the husband. Have you ever talked to a spouse? who's been cheated on? I mean, once is enough. But imagine having to hear repeated promises and repeated excuses, in Israel's case, not just for hundreds, but thousands of acts of infidelity. I mean, you get to a point, and I've seen this in relationships, you get to a point where the cheating spouse detests Everything about the other spouse attempting to make it right. They detest them. Forgiveness means nothing to the cheating spouse because there's no repentance. One week turns into months, turns into years of unfaithfulness, and the children are devastated. Let me ask you again. Does hate describe something so hard to believe? God has to use a term and phrases that convey to us the intensity of his feeling for the repeated sin of his people and their unrepentance. Now, do we find this objectionable because we know God so well and we think it's impossible for God to feel this way? Or is it because we are afraid that our sin may have something close to this kind of an impact upon God? And that's just too fearful to face. Maybe this will help not love them anymore. That's another one of these jolting phrases. The Hebrew word is shabab. It means to cherish with affection, to have close fellowship, to be good friends. I mean, when God loves his people with this kind of love, they're good friends, and he desires to have close fellowship with them, he wants to hear their voice often. However, When his people reject him, they don't want to know God. Close intimacy with God is not possible. You can't have close fellowship or friendship when one party is not willing, right? Now, this is not Hesed love. This is a love that I talked about before in previous messages that that, uh, Hosea talks about earlier. This is when you promise to have a sacrificial love. When you love like Hasid, it's not based on feelings. It's not a romantic notion. I mean, when you allow the feelings to lead the train, you rarely express Hasid. Now, I've heard more than once a spouse say these words. I don't love my spouse anymore. Maybe you've even said it. My question To that, though, is what kind of love are you talking about? Because you made a promise when you got married to have a chesed. You didn't make a promise to always be romantic. If you did, you're making a promise you can't keep because nobody has that. And if you're saying, but I don't love my spouse, I don't have romantic feelings toward my spouse, That is understandable. Every marriage goes through some seasons like that. I mean, no marriage has butterflies 24-7 and is always white hot with romantic notions. That kind of love is largely circumstantial, and it takes two people to be realized. It's mutual. However, if you're talking about chesed or covenantal love, a sacrificial love, that's something different. Chesed says, I choose to love my spouse give to my spouse, even when my own feelings are not leading me to do that. This is the kind of love that Jesus had when he died for us. Jesus didn't say, thank you everyone for being so willing to follow me and to do everything that I've told you to do and to never sin, therefore I'm going to love you. He did not say that. because he had Hesed love. Maybe that makes this instruction sound a little different in, Hebrew, in Ephesians 5 when it says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Sacrificial love. This Hesed love, That is not what is spoken about in Hosea 9. So when God says, I don't love you, he's saying, we can't have Shabbat, We can't have fellowship with you in this state. I'm not approving of your sinful adultery and acting like it's all okay. Lord, may we know you enough to know How whole you are. May we know you enough to hate sin and how hurt you are when we are obstinate in our own sin. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Even though they give birth, I will put their beloved children to death. Israel was praying to Baal, sacrificing to Baal to have more children. God was going to cut off the spigot to turn their hearts to the real God who blesses the womb. And to show the depth of their sin, God is saying even if they did have children and they died, I don't think it'd make any difference with them because the nation remains so blind and resistant to God's continued calls to them. You know, just step back for a second. Like I said earlier, I think we all deserve death. That's that's the punishment we're all deserving of. And let us not think that God is not within his rightful sovereignty to take human life. He is. And who of us thinks we deserve to be happy, deserve to live as many days as we want. The creator cannot have terms made to him by the created. Especially when the created is obstinate and praying to other false gods, as Israel was doing. My God will reject them because they have not listened to him They shall be wanderers among the nations. Here we see Hosea's prayer, understanding that God is just to not give his people all the blessing of the promised land that they have taken for granted and attributed to a false god. They're gonna be cast out of the land like he promised he would do. What all of Israel deserves is death. However, Hosea prays for mercy. God, will you please only cast us off and allow us to be wanderers? Don't annihilate us. Don't obliterate us. Just let us wander. This is what God did in his mercy. It strikes me that as a people, we often lack the foundation, the framework for our actions. We don't think as a theist. We think like the culture, like a secular person. During this current Olympic trials, an American athlete in the hammer throw placed third. Standing with the gold and silver winner while the national anthem was playing, she refused to stand at attention. She faced away from the flag and draped a t-shirt over her head that read, activist athlete. And she said later, she was standing for social justice. Now obviously there are gonna be some that condemn her action. Others will be like the winner of the hammer throw, apparently her friend who said, I'm proud of her. I think she should say whatever she wants to say. Here's another devotee to the idol of secular freedom. Now, I'm not arguing against specific social changes that need to be made, but what is social justice based on? Can this athlete make an argument for the morality and the motivations that drive one to reject communal standards of patriotism and opt for social justice? Martin Luther King did that. Uh, When he wrote his letter from the Birmingham jail, it was replete with Scripture. Many references to God. This is where the moral order comes from. There's a moral platform in which I can say to a culture, What you're doing here is wrong. It's just not words that are empty. This is not a car without an engine. When you have this framework to work within, it makes sense. And there may be times in which you rebel against a society with that kind of moral framework. But without it, where's your moral framework sprouting from? other than just individual claims of freedom. Instead, any woke individual can say whatever they want and it is crowned ex cathedra because freedom warrants it. It resembles the famed philosopher and theologian, the Roadrunner, with Wiley Coyote. When Wiley would run over a cliff, remember you'd see him running in the air? You know, he'd be suspended in air and you'd see his feet running, running with nothing to support him. And eventually he would experience a fall only to return to the next cartoon episode. (laughs) Nothing to support it. It's an opportunity for the gospel is what it is. I don't, I'm not giving my condemnation. It's sadness that people are making claims that rarely, if ever, can they back up. That when you begin to ask just second level questions, it's just like, what? The Christian is different. The Christian has a framework to act as an individual in society knowing that we are all made in the image of God, every person, gay, straight, atheist, theist, this answers why every individual is valuable. Secondly, we are responsible to God for our moral choices. This gives us a framework for our choices, and it prioritizes them. Moral choices were not comprised by a capricious God, but by a personal God that we saw displayed in the person of Jesus Christ. Oswald Chambers said, am I becoming more and more in love with God as a holy God or with the conception of an amiable being who says, oh, well, sin doesn't matter much. Human beings have to live with this knowledge that we've all failed in our moral choices, and we are living in a sin-filled world, as I referenced Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's all of us. That's our society. That's our culture. We shouldn't be surprised that we're seeing what we're seeing. But God is doing something with his people. He is constantly trying to tether us to this bigger framework in the context of community. We take communion to embrace the reality that sin exists in us, but his grace covers us. We are baptized to publicly demonstrate our allegiance to Christ over allegiance to any other cause patriotism whatever it is it's Christ is my supreme authority and that's where my life is found and then we relate to one another with selfless love so that our communities and our families that are built on this covenantal love this hased are a living testimony For the love of God. Is it hard? Oh, you better believe it. It is not easy. But may all this remind us that we are taking our cues from King Jesus and we serve him gladly, not opting for the idols of the age. Let me read a New Testament passage. And I say that because people want to condemn the Old Testament like Hosea, which obviously I'm not party to, but here's New Testament. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. That perhaps describes what we've read in Hosea better than anything. And I hope it's an impetus for us to follow God with a healthy fear and love and be drawn to him. Let's pray.